Good morning, Cross Point. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Children, you can be released for Children's Church. And then if the rest of you would turn with me to the book of Zechariah this morning. So Zechariah, you're going to find this right after Haggai, which we were in last week. And then next week, it's um, Malachi comes right after Zechariah. So if you'll turn there, and and as you're turning there, I just want to give you a a quick update, because as we come to the end of this series through the Minor Prophets, which is minor simply because they're shorter books of the Bible, starting November 27th, we're going to begin our Advent series. Now, Advent is that time kind of leading up to uh, Christmas. It's a time of of expectation and preparation. It's hard to believe that just in about five weeks um, from that date, Christmas will be upon us. And and I think what what I found in my own heart, and and as I'm talking with people, the theme this year is uh, a weary world rejoices. I, I think there is this sense of weariness in all of us. It's been a long two years. And, but we have a great hope in Christ. And so I want, and my prayer is in this series, that it would be a time to really cultivate our hearts as we both remember God's past faithfulness in the coming of Jesus Christ in the nativity, but also a preparation for our hearts in the expectation of his future second coming in this time in between, in our weariness of life to lift our hearts and in rejoicing. Now, there's two special services I want to highlight because the last two Sundays of this year fall on holidays. So it falls on Christmas Day, December 25th, and it falls on New Year's Day. Because we meet in a public school, we're not able to use this facility on those two Sundays. But we still want to have an opportunity to come together together to celebrate together. So what we're going to be doing is hosting two special services. The first is on the eve of Christmas Eve, which is Friday, December 23rd at 6 p.m. that we're going to be doing a candlelight service here to celebrate together. Now, this is going to be a special service for the whole family. We want to have all generations participating. Uh, We will be doing a candlelight. We can't do it in here uh, legally, but we can go out into the courtyard for that portion. But we're looking forward to have this time to celebrate together. And then the same thing for December 30th. That's another Friday at 6 p.m. We're going to be doing a worship night. The idea behind this is we want to have worship and testimonies, this time where we end the year and move into the new year with the time of fixing our hearts and minds on Christ, worshiping together, but also wanting to have a time of sharing testimonies. We're going to open up the mic and have a time for you to be able to share how you have experienced God's faithfulness this past year, to be an encouragement to one another. So we're looking forward to those times together, but wanted to make sure that they were on your calendar. So with that, one thing I want to encourage you in is as we prepare for this new series, we've made these invitation cards that I I want to encourage you that as you leave today, would you take two or three of these with you and then prayerfully consider, like, don't just be like, oh, I'll leave them wherever, like pray about who would God have you invite to come join you 
to participate with you. This is a time and a season where people are willing to come, be it to one of the special services or on a regular Sunday service, to invite them to be your guest, to come with you. And then I would encourage you to go out to lunch with them afterwards, talk with them about how they experienced it, where their heart is in their own story. And so if you will, pick up two, three. You can take more. There's plenty back at the connect table in these coming weeks to invite others. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump into Zechariah. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning, Lord, that that we have to together together. Lord, I pray for those who you would have come and, and join us in these coming weeks that, Lord, as we recognize the weariness in our own soul and yet lift our eyes above our circumstances to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that in this season you would renew our spirits, you would renew our hope, Lord, restore the joy of our salvation. Lord, and I pray that as we open your word now, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. And Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start with this question. Have you ever felt forgotten? Like unseen? The the wallflower? You're there, but nobody seems to remember or notice. People have maybe made promises to you of of how they would be there, but those things are are never followed through on. And, And though they said, hey, I'll always be there whenever you need me, but when the need arose and you looked around, nobody was there. Those who promised to be there weren't. And so you feel forgotten, abandoned, It's hard to stay in close relationship with somebody when you feel like they aren't there, when they've forgotten about you. But what happens when that sense of being forgotten isn't just about another person, but about God? What about when it feels like God has abandoned you? When all of a sudden, the circumstances of life, you're like, God, I thought you said you would always be here, and he doesn't seem to be here. And then then you say, like, For the time of Zechariah, like you promised us, God, this land, you promised us your presence. But then where was he? Assyria came, the the Babylonians came in, that they, they took them off to exile, God. Have you forgotten your promises? Have you forgotten your people? This is where we're at in the book of Zechariah. If, if you remember last week with Haggai, there were three different times that God spoke through Haggai. The first was to call people like they had forgotten about God, that, that they had moved away from God. God, we came back to the land for two years. They laid the foundation of the temple, but then 16 years, they've only worked on their own houses, their own comfort. They moved away. And then God said, what about think carefully? Why are you putting all your work into your homes when mine lies in ruins, the the representation of his presence? And it said the people feared God. They repented. They turned. And it's in the middle of these prophecies of Haggai that Zechariah speaks. Because see, the people feared God. They, they, They moved towards repentance. But I still believe that what we see in Zechariah is there's this sense of brokenness. 
Does Zechariah's name, it means Yahweh remembers. We see it right here in verse 1. And it's important that we don't just read too quickly. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, again, this is probably like November of 520, like this month of 520 BC, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Yahweh remembers. He remembers. He hasn't forgotten his promises. God hasn't forgotten his people. God hasn't forgotten the place to which he called them. God hasn't forgotten his presence. The people are not forgotten. God remembers. And this is how we enter then the book of Zechariah. He remembers. And then in verse 2, what we see in these opening six verses, I believe, are critical. Look at what it says here in in verse 2. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. It's a strange way to start, but I think it's important as well that we not just read too quickly because God was angry, but he was not absent. God was angry, but he had not abandoned them. See, when it came to to, to the people's parents and their grandparents, there's a difference between a father who lovingly disciplines his children to shepherd their heart towards God and a father who walks out, right? There's a difference. God disciplined them, but he did not abandon them. God had not forgotten. He was working, but in ways they could not understand. So, so tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. This phrase, we saw it last week again and again, and we see it this week. Lord of armies, Yahweh Savaiot. It means the supreme commander of the divine heavenly armies in a time of war. You think God is passive, but he is active. You think he has forgotten, but he has remembered. You think God is weak and impotent, but he is the commander of the armies. He is working, he is fighting, he is strong, and he remembers. This is what God has to say. The Lord of armies says, return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. It's a call to return. God has not forgotten you, but you have fled from God. In the discouragement and wounds of life, when things didn't go the way you thought, when you presumed that God had turned his back and forgotten all about you, you decided to do it on your own. Take care of yourself. Pursue your own comfort. You got this on your own until you're reminded that you don't and it's not working out for you. And the call is to return to me. There's a story that I was reminded of as I was reading this of an old couple driving down the highway in their golden years of marriage, right? They're riding in their antique truck that, you know, that kind that has like the single bench up front and they're just driving along in silence and the husband kind of noticed this expression on his wife's face of 
kind of sadness. And he's like, what's going on? She's like, you know, we used to sit like side by side. You used to put your arm around me and, and we would just talk and I felt so safe and comforted in your arms, but you never do that anymore. I miss it. And he drove down the road and he thought about it and then he simply asked, who moved? He'd been in the same seat all the years, the same driver's seat, but so slowly over time, just kind of moved away until it seemed like this insurmountable distance between them. I think something similar is being said here. Return to me, and I will return to you. The people had moved away in disobedience to God, in indifference to God. They had slowly just moved away, and and we don't know exactly why, but I think some of it was just disappointment in life. He didn't do what I thought he was going to do. There's wounds. There's pains from life. He made promises. He's not keeping them as far as I can see, and those feelings led to this thought that I don't need them. And so they found themselves at a distance, and God's calling them, the Lord of the armies. He's saying, return to me. Return to the point from which you have departed is the literal meaning of this word. But then what we see in the next six chapters, through verse 7 up through the end of chapter 6, is this picture of who God is displayed in eight different visions. And I want to just kind of pass over these with a high level to understand who is it that we're called to return to, right? Who, what is he like, this God to whom we're called to, to return? Because after a while, maybe we've forgotten. Maybe we've been so far removed for so long and so many lies have come into our mind about how God has forgotten and abandoned us that we forget who he really is. And so it's like, let me tell you that God is your lookout. Verses 8 through 17, in this first vision, we see men riding on multicolored horses, patrolling the earth. One of the angels asked a question of God, and it said he responded kindly and with compassion. That God is jealous for his people. He has not forgotten them. And he has not forgotten that while God was disciplining his children and others were bullies to them, he noticed that too, and he's going to deal with that. He's on the lookout. He's patrolling the earth. He is active. In vision two, the end of of chapter one, we see that God is a judge. God is going to punish those nations who hurt them, who while God was disciplining them, his own children and those others came in to hurt them, God's going to deal with them. He's going to protect them. We see in vision three in chapter two that God is their protection. He's described like the wall to an ancient city that protects the people, so God is surrounding them and protecting them. This is who God is that we're called to return to. In the fourth vision in chapter 3, we see that God is their sanctuary. We see the high priest Joshua, it says that Satan is standing beside him, hurling accusation after accusation after accusation like a monkey hurls its own feces. Right? That's a good image, isn't it? That's what came to mind. It's like it's kind of nasty and just 
disgusting. But it's what, it, what like how it's describing it. And, and he's covered in the filth. And it says God cleans him, puts on new clothes. That's who God is. He defends him. He protects him. He cleanses him. In vision five of chapter four, that God is your provision. It's not by your own strength, it says. Not by your own might, but by the spirit of God. That's who God is. Return to me. In chapter 6, God is the final word. It's like this huge scroll up in the sky. It, God's word determines what's right and wrong. It's God's word that purges evil. It's God. Then in vision 7, the end of, of chapter 5, we see that God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over it. Evil doesn't reign. It doesn't just move about as it pleases. God is sovereign over it. Does evil exist in the world today? Yes. Why? Because there is coming a day when evil will be no more. But when that day comes, there will be no more opportunity for people to return to God. And so when the angels cry out, when the people cry out, and the martyrs cry out in heaven, how long, O Lord, how long? It's like when, when all of my children are home, evil will come to an end. See, the presence of evil does not discard the existence of God, nor does it diminish the holiness and goodness of God. If anything, it shows his kindness and mercy. But evil though it exists for a time, does not happen outside of the control and sovereignty of God. That's what's in the seventh vision. In the eighth vision, found in the first eight verses of chapter six, again, God is in control. Again, we see the horsemen on the horses patrolling the earth. This is who God is. In the command, return to me and I will return to you. And here's what we begin to see. In chapter 7 and 8, the people want it to return to God. We see this desire, what we see in chapter 2, like now the people of Bethel had sent these men of whose names I cannot pronounce to plead for the Lord's favor by asking the priests who were at the house of the Lord of armies as well as the prophets, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month? as we have done these many years, like they want the Lord's favor. They want his favor. They want to return. They're like, this is who God is. We want to return to him. We want the Lord's favor. And it says all these years, for 70 years, they mourned, they lamented, they fasted every single disappointment they had experienced. See, in the fourth month, the day the walls of Jerusalem were breached, they would fast and mourn. In the fifth month, the day that the temple was consumed by fire, they would lament and mourn. In the seventh month, the day one of their leaders was assassinated, they would remember and lament and mourn. In the tenth month, the day that Nebuchadnezzar first sieged the city of Jerusalem, they would lament and mourn. It's like every single month there's a 9-11 kind of event. And they're remembering and mourning discouragement and defeat after defeat after defeat for 70 years. And they're asking the question, can we stop now? The temple's being rebuilt. 
Like, can we rejoice now or do we need to continue to mourn? What do we need to do? And here's the thing. God asks a question that's not particularly comforting and incredibly convicting. It's poignant and it pierces to the heart of not just action, but motivation. Look at what he asked in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 7. Ask all the people of the land and the priest. Ask them this. When you fasted, when you lamented in the, the fifth and in the seventh months for these 70 years, did you really fast for me? Were you really lamenting for me? Were you mourning for me? Were you fasting for me? Or, or when you eat and you drink, aren't you actually doing those things simply for yourselves? That kind of cuts, doesn't it? Why do you do what you do? Why are you mourning? What are you mourning for? That the people experience loss, hurt, life not going the way that they thought it should go. They thought God had forgotten them, abandoned them. And they continued pulling away, trying to just comfort themselves in their home and in their lives to the disregard of God. They mourned. They mourned the loss of protection as the city walls fell. They mourned the loss of comfort as their homes were destroyed. They mourned their loss of security. They mourned the provision and the blessings of God. They mourned the things that they once had that they have now lost. They mourned all of that. But they did not lament for God. They lamented the things that he had given them. And I wonder if we're very different or the same. John Piper, in his book, God is the Gospel, asked a similar question. If you could have heaven, if you could have heaven, but, but no sickness, there's no sickness, and, and all the friends you've ever had on earth are there, and, and all the food you ever liked was in heaven, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, if all the natural beauties of earth that you ever saw were in heaven, <clears throat> all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and, and there's no human conflict, there's no natural disasters. If you could have all of this, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Now, here's the thing I know the church answer. You know the church answer. But when I evaluate my heart, it kind of goes something like this. It's both. I hope and I pray that I desire Christ more than I desire these things. But I know my heart. And I know it's impurity. I, I know my broken motives. And I think that's the point of the question. Not that our longings are too strong, but they are far too weak. That what we lament and what we think, oh, we're returning to, was not God, but just the things that we would get from his hand. And we see this as it continues. In, in chapter 7, verse 11, there 
accused of falling into the same thing that the parents did and the grandparents did. You, you failed to pay attention. You've turned a stubborn shoulder. You've closed your ears from hearing my instruction. In verse 12, your hearts are like a rock, that they're not tender towards me. Who moved? Who moved in this relationship? You want the strength, the security, the warmth of being in relationship with God, but without God. You've turned away from me, and, and then you accuse God of abandoning you. Return to me. But your longings are not too strong, but too weak. But here's the beauty of Zechariah. God's pursuit of us is strong enough. See, chapter 7 starts to show us how our longings, our motives are too weak. But chapter 8 begins to change and tells us the longings of God. I want you to see that the strength of God's faithful longing for his people. Zechariah 8, 2 through 3. The Lord of armies again. The commander and chief says this, I am extremely jealous for Zion. I'm jealous for her with great wrath. The Lord says this, I will return to Zion and I will live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called a faithful city. See, I'm going to come. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to work and I'm going to transform this people, this city. The mountain of the Lord of armies will be called the holy mountain. And, and it says in verse six, what seems impossible with you, what seems impossible with your own heart and your own strength is possible with God. In seven and eight, I will save my people. I will be their faithful and righteous God. See, your shoulders are too stubborn. Your ears are too closed. Your heart is too hard. But I will save my people. This is what God promises. And there will be people from all nations who enjoy the salvation of God. But how? How is God going to pursue? How is God going to save? This is the beauty of Zechariah. So if this were the book of Zechariah, right, the first eight chapters are speaking of things present in the life of Zechariah. Chapters 9 through 14 are speaking of things yet to come. And there's lots that's mentioned here. Prophecies outside of the Messiah that have already been fulfilled that are in here. But what I want to focus on are three prophecies that tell us how God fulfills his promises that are made in chapter 8. There's three things that, that tell us who is this that will come? How will God redeem? How will he save? How do we know when this has come about? Because I pray that we all feel our brokenness. I pray that we all feel our mixed motives. I know what I want to say. I know the right answer to say, but I also know my own heart. And I can't do it on my own. And God said he's going to save. And he said he's going to redeem. And he said he's going to build a faithful city where nations are coming to him. And I know I can't do this on my own. So how will this happen? In Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly. No more mourning. How do we rejoice instead of mourning? Can the mourning stop? Can the lament stop? Are we done with that now? Rejoice. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph. There is a victory now. No more defeat. 
No more beaten down. There has been triumph, Dardo of Zion. Look, your king is coming to you. And this king, he is righteous. He is good. He is righteous where you have been unrighteous. And he is victorious where you have been in defeat. He walks in victory. Where you have walked in pride, he is humble. And this is how you know who that king is. He will come riding on a donkey, on a coat, the fowl of a donkey. 520 years before Christ was born in the nativity, 520 years before it ever happened, there was a promise that was made. There is a king who is coming who is going to save. And then the gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, Your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the fowl of a donkey. Do you see in those tender words the gentleness of a king that comes in victory, that comes in righteousness, that comes in gentleness to save because we could not return on our own with our hard hearts and closed ears, we could not return on our own. And so we received a king and a savior. Zechariah 11, 12 and 13, it says, and this is in Zechariah, then I said to them, if it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And you're like, okay, where are we going with this? Here's the thing. If you remember Judas, one of the disciples who betrayed Christ, it says, so they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. By Old Testament law, that was the value of a slave who had been killed. That is how Judas viewed Christ, nothing more than a slave of which he was a master over. And then he said, throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. This magnificent price that I was valued by them. I pray you see the sarcasm in that. That's pretty dripping with sarcasm. 30 pieces of silver is not a magnificent price. That is not, that showed how, how little they valued him. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. It didn't make sense. For five centuries, it didn't make sense. Until Matthew records in chapter 26, Judas says to the priest, what are you willing to give me if I hand Jesus over to you? And so they weighed out for him 30 pieces of silver. And Judas thought perfect. Matthew 27, then what was spoken through the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. 
See, even here, what I want us to see is there are these indications of the faithful promises of God that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And there's one more. There's actually many in Zechariah, but in 12.10, it says this. And I want to conclude with these thoughts. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. A spirit of grace, a spirit of forgiveness, a spirit that when you cry out for mercy, Lord, I want to return, I want your favor, but I know the motives of my own heart. I know it's hardness. And so I plead for mercy and I receive forgiveness and grace. How? When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. As they look on the one whom they have pierced, John 19 says this of Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his leg since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. And he knows he is telling the truth, for these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. As another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. How will God save his people? There is a king who was promised to come, who would ride on a donkey, who would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, who would be pierced. And as we look upon him and cry out for mercy from him, we would receive grace. This is Zechariah. So let's come around to the original question. Have you ever felt forgotten or unseen by God? The pain, the wounds of life kind of makes you feel like he's forgotten you, abandoned you, moved away. The truth is he is not. The question and call for all of our hearts is who's moved? in our brokenness, in our hardness of heart, we've moved. And God's invitation is the same, return to me and I'll return to you. Look upon the one whom I have sent, who was pierced for your salvation. God has not abandoned. He is good, compassionate, and merciful. And the bad news is you can say, I want that. And I'll work for that. What do I need to do? And the reality is we can't do it on our own. Our love is too weak. Our commitment is too fleeting. Our hearts are too hard. Our ears are too closed. We cannot do it on our own. And so we look to the one who did it on our behalf, who God promised, I will save. I will deliver. I will be present. And his name is Christ That is the good news. Jesus is the one who was promised. Jesus is the one who is righteous. He is the one who is victorious. He is the one who is humble. 
Jesus is the one who was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is the one whom was pierced and who we look upon for mercy. Let's pray.